This morning we're going to be in Colossians chapter 4 and we're going to be thinking about the topic of evangelism. So I'd ask you if you would, take your copy of God's Word, look at Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be studying verses 2 to 6 together. And then if you're able, when you have that, please stand with me out of respect for God's Word. And I will read this portion of Scripture for us as we think about this important topic. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open a door for us for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains, so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. As you can tell, just by reading through the passage, the topic, the theme is sharing the gospel and Paul's desire to do so. And so my question as we begin is, when was the last time you shared the gospel with a non-believer? When many people or many Christians think of evangelism, they immediately begin to feel two emotions, fear and guilt. They experience fear because sharing the gospel is not easy. Uh, We know that a lot can go wrong, if you will, in terms of our relationship with others. It can be quite costly, and often just the thought of how that person might respond to us is enough to convince us that we need to wait longer because now is not the right time to share the gospel with them. We feel guilt because even though we should share the gospel, Uh, Quite often, we are very aware of the fact that we've been disobedient, that we have not shared the gospel as we should have, that we've let opportunities to speak for Christ go by. Now, we've even been ashamed of the gospel, though perhaps at that moment, that wasn't what we were thinking about. But the reality is, and we know this, that evangelism is not optional. It's a command. Uh, We read the Great Commission this morning because it's a command that has been given to us. It's a stewardship. The stewardship of the gospel has been entrusted to all of us. And so every single follower of Jesus has the spiritual responsibility of making Christ known and of sharing him with others. Of course, that doesn't make it easy, as we've been saying. Often evangelism itself, the act itself, can be awkward. Uh, One person defined evangelism as two people sharing an awkward conversation about Jesus. Let me give you an example from my own life. And some of you have heard this before, but I think it's, you know, a good picture of this. So I went to the Master's College. It's now the Master's University in Santa Clarita, California, just north of Los Angeles. And it's a, it is a self-consciously Christian university, which means that everyone that goes there must be a professing Christian, which means that there's a high percent of Christians on campus, and it's actually quite difficult to find someone who's not a believer to share the gospel with. And so it's very easy if you're on the campus to be in something of a Christian bubble and you go to chapel and you go to class and you go to church and you can spend four years of your life and never really rub shoulders with someone who would say that they are a non-believer. And so if you're going to do any kind of evangelism, you have to be willing to leave the campus in order to do so. But actually, it's very easy to find the campus to be quite comfortable and just to stay there and to live your life there for four years in that kind of isolated Christian bubble. Well, one day there was a chapel speaker. He graduated from the school about 10 years before, and he shared about his own experience in terms of evangelism because as he went through his time at the school, he began to feel burdened to share the gospel. I mean, he realized he wasn't having opportunities to do so, 
and he wasn't sure what to do about it, so he went to a, a local store, and he bought some food, and then he went into inner city Los Angeles, and he met a homeless man, and he shared the food with the homeless man and began to talk with this individual, and over time, he actually developed a relationship with him and was able to share Christ with him, and this individual became a follower of Jesus, and as I sat in chapel, I felt quite guilty because I had a sense that I should also be sharing my faith, and yet I wasn't sharing my faith. I, I wanted to see people saved. I, I wanted to talk with people about Jesus, and eventually I, I just had to do something. So one Monday morning, I got up bright and early about six o'clock, and I went to the local donut shop, and I got a dozen donuts, and I drove down the road to where I knew there'd be a group of migrant workers who were waiting for someone to come and pick them up in a truck and take them off to wherever they would work for that day. Now, I got out of my car. I was a little scared. I had donuts. I don't remember if my hands were shaking or not, but I walked towards these people and I began in my best broken Spanish to ask if anyone would like a donut. And I felt like Moses parting the Red Sea as, as I walked in the middle of this crowd. And they looked at me wondering why the crazy man was trying to give them poison donuts. Uh, they didn't know if I was a serial killer or perhaps I was, uh, you know, an officer of the Immigration and Naturalization Service. And, uh, and they didn't know what to do, so they just stepped back. Well, one young man must have took pity on me because I walked up to him and I took a donut and I ate it in front of him to prove that it hadn't been poisoned. And then he took one and I had the chance to share the gospel with him, but it was quite awkward. But he was gracious and kind and listened to me. And I thanked him for talking with me. And then I turned around and left. He never responded to the gospel as far as I know. And that was the end of the encounter. Yes, Evangelism, and especially unwise evangelism, can be quite awkward. But perhaps this morning you're a bit frustrated. Or perhaps this morning you're feeling guilty. Even the topic of evangelism is enough to make many of us feel guilty, as if we're, we just know that this is something that's lacking in our life. Well, if, if that's you, uh, you're in good company. Uh, you're among a group of people that are trying to grow in our faithfulness to Jesus and our faithfulness to talk about him with others. And that's what we want to do. We want to learn about this. We want to think about this together so that as we go through 2023, we can share the gospel more times than we did in 2022. Uh, we want to grow in this as a church. And the good news is that God's word, it never leaves us orphans. Uh, the Bible's filled with wisdom for us about how we can share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. And our passage in particular this morning focuses our hearts on that. It shows us what it looks like to be a faithful evangelist from the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, let me give you some background on the book of Colossians. Uh, Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul when he was in prison. Now, you would think that the Apostle Paul in prison would have an excuse to kind of step back from the ministry that he was doing, because after all, he couldn't go anywhere as he had previously. Before he was going through the entire Mediterranean world, he was sharing the gospel, he was planting churches, but now, providentially, he's been confined to a place he cannot leave. He must be in Rome as he awaits trial, but he does not let that stop him from ministry. Listen to what the end of the book of Acts says, Acts 28, verse 30. Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So even as he's awaiting the trial, he's taking every opportunity to speak for Christ, and he's doing more than that because he's planted churches and his associates have planted churches, and he cares for them and he's praying for them, yes, but he also writes them letters, and praise God that he did because we have received these letters. We know them as the prison epistles. And one of those letters is the Colossian letter, the letter to the church of the Colossians. 
Now, the church of Colossae, or the church in Colossae, is located in what is today the country of Turkey. It was planted by Paul's associate, Epaphras. This group had trusted in Christ, had followed Jesus, but then false teaching uh, kind of sprung up among them, in particular false teaching about Jesus that was making Jesus less glorious than he is, denying his deity and other aspects of this heresy. And so Paul writes this letter to the Colossians in order to counteract that false teaching and also to center them on Jesus Christ. And what a great prayer for Christ fellowship is that we would always be centered on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's what he's doing in this letter. He's centering this church on Christ. And he's also, in this letter, uh, pointing them towards what faithfulness in the Christian life looks like. Uh, He even uses himself as an example. Towards the end of this letter, which is where we are this morning, in chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, the Apostle Paul gets somewhat personal as he talks about his own desires, his desire for them, but also his desire for himself as well in this issue of evangelism. Paul wanted to be a faithful evangelist, and so he encouraged his church to pray for him, which is wonderful humility. And he also gives them great insights into what it looks like to be a faithful evangelist. So now this, the sermon is entitled Faithful Evangelism, but I want you to notice something about the passage. Uh, the passage, these verses are not addressed to a few super Christians in the congregation. Uh, those who have the gift of evangelism, who are responsible to share the faith. Actually, these verses are they're written to everyone who is a part of the congregation. And because this is inspired scripture, this is written to every single follower of Jesus in order to give us instruction on what it looks like to be faithful to the Lord in this way. So evangelism is not simply the responsibility of a few super-Christians who are particularly gifted. Evangelism is the responsibility of every believer who has the Holy Spirit of God within and the truth of the gospel, and so has all he or she needs to speak for Christ. We just need to know that at the beginning. We have all we need to speak for Christ. We have it. Well, as we look at these verses, we're going to see that that verses 2 to 6 contain three commands. And taken together, they give us a picture of what it looks like to be faithful in evangelism. So if you're taking notes, we'll see three truths, three points from this passage, three points from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, about what a faithful Christian looks like, and especially what a faithful Christian looks like as it relates to this issue of evangelism. The first point is that a faithful Christian will be devoted to prayer. Faithful Christian will be devoted to prayer. We'll see that in verses 2 to 4. And second, we'll see a faithful Christian will live wisely before non-believers. We'll see that when we look at verse 5. And then third, we'll see that a faithful Christian will speak the gospel graciously. And we'll see that when we look at verse 6. Now, we're going to spend most of our time this morning on that first point, and then we'll cover the second point and the third point more briefly. Let's look at that first point together. Take your copy of God's Word. Let's look at that. A faithful Christian will be devoted to prayer. Look with me at verse 2. Here's what Paul says. Here's the command. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to preach the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should. Now, as you look at these verses as a whole, you see that a faithful Christian is going to be devoted to prayer, specifically to prayer for himself or herself, but also prayer for others. So first, a faithful Christian will pray for himself. Look at verse 2. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. What is on 
Paul's heart as he begins to close this letter, this desire he has as a spiritual father to these believers that they would devote themselves to prayer, that they would be prayerful, uh, that they would be a people of continual prayer. And it is that pattern of continual prayer that marked the Apostle Paul's life. He says that in chapter 1, verse 9. He says that as soon as he heard about their conversion, he had not ceased praying for them bringing them before the Lord, asking God to grow them and give them grace. Paul was a man of prayer. He wanted the Colossians to follow his pattern. Now, why? Well, because he knew that prayer is the way we access the power of God to live the Christian life. Uh, Prayer is how we marshal the resources of heaven in our behalf so that we can live for Jesus. Prayer is how we gain strength ourselves and how others gain strength. Prayer connects us to omnipotence so that we can live for Christ. So we want to dwell closely to the throne of grace, which means we need to be continually speaking to the Father, uh, making our request to Him for ourselves. What might it look like to pray continually? Uh, I think I got a picture of that uh, when my children were younger and we would read books together. It was interesting to me to note that these children, they always wanted to share with me what they were seeing. We're reading the book together, but they wanted to talk with me about what they were seeing. Things like, you know, dad, the monkey took the ball or or, dad, the dog is near the alligator. Just kind of pointing these things out to me and sharing with me and walking with me in this relationship as we read the book together. And I think that's a good picture of what it is we're trying to do. Why? Because God is our father. He's not an aloof deity somewhere, vaguely concerned that there may be some people that are trying to worship him. Actually, no, the Bible pictures him as Father. Actually, Father is the New Testament name for God. It's this wonderful revelation that in Christ, God is our Father and that he cares for us and he wants us to live our lives before him. And so as his children, we should constantly be going to him in prayer throughout the day, talking with him about our experience bringing our needs before him, thanking him for his grace, praying for others. Really, our conversation should be childlike, right? As we come to our Lord with bold confidence uh, because he is our father. Well, Paul continues his instruction on prayer in the second part of verse 2. Look at what he says. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. So there's more details here, right? We, We want to be constant in prayer. We want to be continually praying. But now there's kind of two more descriptions of what that prayer should look like. There should be an alertness in it, and there should be thanksgiving as a part of it. Now, commentators have different opinions. They suggest different ideas as to what being alert in prayer looks like. Some say, you know, Paul is encouraging them to kind of uh, remain awake as they pray, uh, to not allow themselves to kind of be lulled into sleep or, or lulled into not really paying attention to what they're doing. And of course, if you've tried to pray for any period of time, you know it's so easy for our minds to wander. We're not really praying, so that's possible. Other commentators believe that this alertness was, was really an eager expectation of the return of Christ. They think it's tied to the return of Christ here, and so we're praying for that. And it's very true, as you read through the New Testament, that they were expecting the Lord to come even in their lifetime. But While it's dishonoring to God to be lazy in prayer and it's crucial to keep a living hope of the return of Christ in our hearts, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about this alertness or this watchfulness in prayer. I think he's talking about the way we're to go through our day. Uh, We're to be alert to our responsibilities. We're to be alert to our needs, watchful. We're to be aware of possible temptations. Uh, We're to be aware of uh, the different people around us that we need to invest in. 
All of these things we should be watching over and all of those things we should be bringing to God continually as we pray so that our prayer life should look like continually bringing requests to God as we go throughout the day and we should be alert and watchful as we do it. Now, Paul also says that our prayer should be marked by thanksgiving. And how easy is it for us to begin praying and what we do is we ask God to give us things. And sometimes we're asking for good things, and that's okay. That's a good thing. He's a good father, and he wants to bless us, and he commands us to ask him to give us good things. But he also commands us to to be thankful. Paul reminded these Colossian believers earlier in the letter that they had been transferred from the kingdom of darkness. They'd been transferred into the kingdom of light, which means they'd gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. Why? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their, Their life should be marked by gratitude for this salvation. Of course, it's It's more than salvation. Our lives really are filled up with blessings from God. And so our prayer life should reflect that. As we receive good gifts from God, we should be quick to give thanks to Him. So brothers and sisters, think about your own prayer life over the last week. How much thankfulness was there? How often did you spend time specifically thinking about the blessings that you had received from God? Every good thing we possess comes from God. That's what James chapter 1 verse 17 says. It all comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no shadow or variation of turning. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. We have been rescued from sin and death. That is a staggering fact. We have no need to fear death because Christ has overcome death in our place. Praise God for that. We've been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment of future glory. God lives within us. That's something that the people outside of the walls of this church would find absolutely stunning, and they'd say, you're crazy, but that's the reality. Christ himself, the Spirit of Christ, lives within us. And there are so many other blessings. So do you have a roof over your head? Have you had adequate food this week? Uh, have Have you had shelter Do you have health? Is the Lord persevering you? Uh, Do you have loved ones in a family? Do you have a church family? Friends, we all have far more than we deserve. And so if we stop and think about it, we will never run out of things to thank God for. And our prayer should be marked by thanksgiving and not by complaining. But, But isn't it often true that we complain? And isn't it easy to develop a habit of complaining in our lives? where without even thinking about it, just the mumbling and the grumbling continues to pour forth. I see that in my own life far too much, and I challenge myself this week to grumble less and give thanks more. You know, practically, when I lay down my head at night, I want to be conscious of the fact that I've, I've self-consciously given thanks to God for His goodness, and I've been fighting against complaining because I, I want to put complaining to death in my life. Why? Because complaining is sinful. Uh, it's ugly. It lies about God. Complaining is lying about God. It's saying that what God is doing is not good. He's not ruling the universe in a fair or just way. I deserve more than what I have, and God is keeping it from me. That's really at the heart of our complaining. It's not a small thing. It's a big thing. We should be putting it to death. And one of the ways we put it to death is this. It's not just the putting off of the complaining. It's the putting on of the thanksgiving. And our prayer gives us the opportunity to do that, both to put off complaining and then to replace that with the putting on grace of giving thanks to God and doing so self-consciously. May God help us offer many prayers of thanksgiving in this coming week. So we see that a faithful Christian will pray for himself or pray for herself, but we also see here in verse 3 and verse 4 that a faithful Christian will pray for others. Look at what Paul says there again. He says, at the same time, pray also for us, 
that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains so that I may make it known as I should. So after Paul reminds them that they should be devoted to prayer and that prayer should look like uh, uh, being watchful and being filled with thankfulness. Paul also wants them to pray for him. And this is, again, a great example of the humility of the Apostle Paul. This is the great apostle to the Gentiles. He's accomplished so much for Christ, and yet he realized he could do nothing apart from God's grace. And so he wants as many people as possible praying for him so that the grace of God would be at work in his life so that he could do the work that God had given to him to do. And he, he wants the Colossians to join him in that ministry. Isn't it amazing to think that when we pray for others, we're joining them in the ministry that God does through them? What a blessing that is. Paul knew that the, the power for ministry and specifically the power behind our evangelism comes from God. And so we should be praying for ourselves, and we should be praying for others. Uh, Paul knew that when Christians pray for other Christians, that's a powerful thing. Look what Charles Spurgeon said about that. He said, remember that intercessory prayer, that's prayer for others, is is the sweetest prayer God ever hears and is exceedingly powerful. What wonders it is wrought. Intercessory prayer has stopped plagues. It removed the darkness that rested over Egypt. Drove away the frogs that leaped on the land, scattered the flies and locusts that plagued the inhabitants of Zoan, removed the thunder and lightning, stayed all the ravages that God's avenging hand did upon Pharaoh and his people. Intercessory prayer has raised the dead, for Elijah stretched himself upon the child seven times, and the child sneezed, and the child's soul returned. As to how many souls intercessory prayer has instrumentally saved, only eternity shall show." Verses 3 and 4, Paul appeals to these Colossians to pray for him. And notice that he wants them to pray for him in two ways. Uh, He prays that God would open a door. Uh, He's looking for opportunities to share the gospel. He wants opportunities to share the gospel. He also prays that God would give him the grace, wants them to pray for him, that God would give him the grace to communicate the gospel clearly. So in verse 3, he wants an open door for the word. In other words, he wants opportunities to speak about Christ, to share the gospel with those who need it. Paul understood, listen, this is important, that God is the sovereign one over those opportunities we have to share the gospel with others. That God's in charge of that. That he's the one who opens the door. That he's the one who brings along the person at the right time so that we can share the gospel with them. And that's why Paul spent time praying for divine appointments so that he could share Jesus with others. And notice he calls it the mystery of Christ. I love that. Well, in the New Testament, that word mystery, it's a, it's a term that speaks of a, a spiritual truth that was hidden in the Old Testament, but now it's been revealed in the New Testament through the person and ministry of Christ. And specifically in Colossians, Paul uses this term mystery to to discuss God's plan of bringing salvation to the Gentiles. That his plan of salvation is worldwide, not just for the Jews, but for all nations. And the Colossians had experienced the blessing of this gospel ministry. And it's this glorious gospel that Paul wants to be able to proclaim to others. And so he wants them to pray that a door would be open so that he could proclaim it. And notice, even though it's costly... We have to grasp that as a church. Evangelism is costly. Notice that Paul's in prison here. Why? Because of his testimony to Jesus. So we should not think about evangelism as something that we can figure out in such a way we can do it and there be no cost to it. 
we have to understand that if we're going to be faithful to Jesus in a fallen world, there will be a cost to it. But it's worth it because Christ is worth it and because his gospel saves. Now, friends, we need to remember that God is the one who gives divine appointments so that we can share the gospel. And that means we need to regularly ask him to grant those opportunities. When I was a seminary student, my uh, professor for evangelism, he taught us a prayer. The prayer was this, Lord, give me opportunities to share the gospel. Give me eyes to see those opportunities and give me boldness to take those opportunities. And that's a good prayer. Uh, That's the kind of prayer Paul was praying that these Colossian believers would pray for him. And that's the kind of prayer that we should be praying as well, brothers and sisters, that God would give us opportunities and eyes to see those opportunities and boldness to take those opportunities of sharing Christ with those who need him. So Paul wanted opportunities. But now look in verse 4. He also wanted to be able to clearly communicate the truth. He says, so that I may make it known as I should, that I should declare it, that I should unveil it, that I should reveal it to others as I should is the idea. And as I thought about this verse this week, it really struck me. Look at those words, as I should. I wonder if we're seeing evidence here that the Apostle Paul is just a man, uh, that, that he is made of clay as we are. Could it be that Paul was tempted at times to be less than clear? Could it be that he was tempted at times to kind of soften the edges or present maybe just the good side, which is what so many people do? They only present the benefits of salvation, but they don't talk about the cost and they don't talk about the need of repentance and turning away from our sins so that we can find life in Christ. But Paul, even though he was tempted, because every evangelist will be tempted, every Christian that wants to be faithful will be tempted to soften the, 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 the sharp truths of the gospel. Paul was faithful. He understood it was his responsibility to present the gospel in a full and straightforward manner. He knew he was under obligation to preach Christ. At one point in Corinthians, he says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Uh, He understood that. He was a faithful evangelist. But that leads me, I think, to an important question. What does it mean to be faithful in evangelism? What is it that we're after? I think a lot of people get confused on this point because when they think of a faithful evangelist, they think of someone who shares the gospel a lot and sees a lot of people repent and believe in Jesus. And that's what they think of as faithful evangelism. But that's not what faithful evangelism is. Now, I say, amen. May we all share the gospel a lot, and may we all see many people come to faith. But that doesn't always happen. Uh, Our role in evangelism is not to save people because we can't do that. Our role in evangelism is to do what the Apostle Paul is doing here. Uh, He wants to make it clear. He wants to speak it directly. He wants to speak it boldly. He wants to talk about Christ as the glorious Savior that he is. He wants to lay Christ before others so that they might turn from their sin and trust in him. And so faithful evangelism is not seeing a lot of fruit from our evangelism. It is sowing good seed. That's what faithful evangelism is. And that's what we do. We look for opportunities and we pray for opportunities. And then when the Holy Spirit enables us, gives us grace and boldness, we speak that forth to others. And then God in his goodness grants life, which means my responsibility is not to save anyone. My responsibility is to be a faithful sower of gospel seed. So I share and I pray and I plead and then I rest And I can rest because it's God who gives the increase. We want to be faithful evangelists in that way. 
so that many of our neighbors and co-workers and lost family members might come to Christ. So what is this gospel that we're supposed to share? Notice he wants to make it clear. Well, we need to be clear on the gospel, right? What is the gospel? What is this message that we are supposed to proclaim? Now, Paul has clarified for us in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Timothy 3 what the gospel is. He summarized the heart of it for us. And as you read through the New Testament, you'll see it. But theologians have, I think, helpfully put the gospel under four heads. Four heads. God, man, Christ, and response. That's the message that we're trying to share. We're trying to share the message of God, that God is a good and holy creator who made us. Uh, he loves us. He wants to have a relationship with us. But then, but then man rebelled against God. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, decided to be better to live for themselves and to do what they wanted to do than to do what God had commanded them to do. And we send in We send in them, and because we come from them, we've all inherited that same sinful nature, which leads us to turn away from God and to go our own way. But then, in his mercy, God sent Christ. That's the next heading, Christ. And what did Christ come to do? The eternal Son of God came to live the kind of life that you and I have failed to live. And he did so perfectly because we needed righteousness. We lack righteousness. Where are we going to get righteousness? It comes from him. And so he lived a perfect life. And then his life mission was to lay down his life as a sacrifice on the cross in the place of sinful men and women like us. And he died on the cross as a sacrifice, taking upon himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead And now, friends, there's a response that's necessary. And when we share the gospel, we have to bring forward that response. And the response that people need to make is they need to repent, to turn away from their sin, and then they need to believe. They need to turn to Christ, and they need to trust in him, in his perfect life. And brothers and sisters at Christ Fellowship, that's the message we want to proclaim. God, man, Christ, and response as we work our way in conversation with those who so desperately need Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Oh, friend, we sat in a Bible study yesterday, and Bill Owen shared about one of the things that brought him to salvation. I really appreciated this, was when Paul says, I know whom I have believed. That was so helpful. It wasn't, I know what I have believed. It's, I know whom I have believed. Oh, I I was so thankful for that. Why? Because that helps us understand our mission in evangelism is not to make people think like we do about any number of issues. It's to present Christ to them so that they can believe on him, this glorious person, and put their trust in him, this glorious person, so that they also could believe on Christ. Offering, if you're here this morning and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, that message of God, man, Christ's response, that's the message you need. Uh, You need that more than good financial news tomorrow. You need that more than than a good job. You need that more than good relationships. You need that more than good health, friend, because you're going to die one day and stand before God. And the Bible so clearly teaches that none of us are able to stand before a holy God and say, you should let me into heaven because I've done such a good job. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I hope you're hearing, I hope you're understanding that this gospel, it's good news about a person, Jesus, who is the Savior God has provided. And he is for you this morning. If you will turn from your sins and put your trust in him, he will rescue you this morning. And we pray that you will. And if you want to talk with someone about what it would look like to follow him, talk with someone sitting around you or talk with me. We'd love to share with you what Christ has done for us. 
As you look at verse 2 and 4, you see that a faithful Christian will be devoted to prayer, prayer for himself and prayer for others. A second point this morning, verse 5, a faithful Christian will live wisely before non-Christians. Now look at verse 5. Act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. That word act there really speaks of living. It's the way that we live our lives, and we're to live our lives wisely. Uh, We live quorum Deo. We live before the face of God. It means that everything we do is lived out before God. He sees it all. And that means that everything we do is significant in light of eternity. And we want to have that thought. We want to have that thought that we're living wisely before God. But notice in particular the emphasis here is making the most of the time. How? Act wisely towards outsiders. So Paul is specifically interested here that the Colossians would live in such a way that they would impact outsiders, those who don't know Jesus, those who haven't followed Christ yet. He wants them to make the best of their time in this life. And this is a call to intentional living. And it means something. It means that we must live differently than the world does. Uh, We need to live distinct lives. We need to live the kind of lives that would catch the attention and say there's something different about this individual about the way they think, about the way they speak, about the, about the way they treat their wife or their husband. There's something different. This is a call to intentional living. Because if we act exactly the same way non-believers do, if we spend our money on the same things, if we have the same dreams, if we pursue retirement in the same selfish way, if we indulge in the same worldly entertainment, if we get angry and anxious over the same political issues that always are present. How can we expect them to believe that there's something powerful in the gospel? How can we expect them to believe that we've truly been changed if everything they can see looks just like everyone else? And so there must be a difference in the way that we live, in the way that we think, in the way that we speak. Brothers and sisters, it's precisely the fact that American Christianity has lost its otherworldliness, its otherworldliness, that it is so pathetically weak. That's why. We're weak because we're worldly. Why would anyone change what they're doing to do precisely what they've been doing before? Oh, we must be distinct and different. The Bible, the Bible word is holy, set apart to God in a special way. According to commentator Curtis Vaughn, the word translated making the most of the time there, it was, a, it was a marketplace term that talked about buying up completely, taking advantage of fully. In other words, we should live our lives to the fullest for Christ. Uh, we should spend every second for him. And that takes discipline and mental effort. And it takes a lot of humility to keep repenting all the way to heaven when we realize, once again, I've been kind of sucked into this worldly mindset. God, help me. Help me live differently. So let's get practical. How are we making the most of the time that God has given us in terms of evangelism? Are there people we're praying for? Uh, Do we have a plan in place? Uh, Do we invite non-believers into our home for the sake of building a relationship with them, a real friendship with them through which the gospel can flow so that they would receive what they need, which is Christ? It's the kind of wise living that Paul is, is telling the Colossians that they need. And he's telling us that we need, that we would be intentional in how we live. That's what living wisely before non Christians looks like. Now, a third point, verse 6 
a faithful Christian will speak graciously to non-believers. Look at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious. Season with salt so that you may know how you should answer each person. Now, verse 5 is talking about wisdom and living before non-believers. Verse 6 is talking about wisdom and how we speak with non-believers. It's talking about our mouths and the words that we use because our speech reveals what's in our hearts. What's here is going to come out, and those that are in the world will be quick to notice if what's in our hearts is greed or anger or pride or selfishness. It's so much better that they would see grace. So much better that they would see kindness in the way that we speak and interact with them. Now, commentators differ in their opinions on what it means to have our speech seasoned by salt. Some think it refers to the use that salt had in ancient culture of being a preservative. So saying we should speak in such a way that we kind of preserve the morals of those around us and call them to a higher standard. I think that's possible. But I actually agree with those commentators who think that this season with salt actually speaks of maybe the zest or the taste of it. And the idea is that there would be a practical wit or a fitness of expression, uh, that we would be skilled in our communication. In other words, we want to be engaging as opposed to boring. We want to be passionate. Uh, We have the most interesting of subjects to talk about. We have Christ and the salvation that he provides for us. We have the hope of eternal life that we can share with others. And we want our speech to be, to be salty as we talk about Jesus. One of the things I learned from my supervisor when uh, Missy and I lived in Central Asia was that as Christians, we should be talking with non-believers uh, in Christian ways. And what I mean by that is we should be very open about our faith. So if someone says, how was your morning? It's just good and right for us to say, my morning was great. I got up, I spent time with God and his word. I had a good time of prayer. And then I went to work. How was your morning? Well, when we say something like that, they learn something about us. They, they learn that we think we can talk with God. Uh, they learn that we read the Bible in the morning. And maybe that will strike some curiosity in their minds about why do you think God listens to you? What is it that makes you think God hears you when you pray? And maybe we'll have an opportunity to talk with them about how through Christ we have access to the Father. And we know we have access because he is our great high priest. We want our speech to be gracious. We want it to be seasoned. Now look at the end of verse 6. Paul ends this section by showing that Christians must be discerning in their speech as well. He says, so that you may know how you should answer each person. And that means we cannot uh, treat each conversation or each witnessing opportunity in exactly the same way. We have, to, we have to be thoughtful about this. We need to know how we should answer each person. So as we interact with non-believers, one friend might need a word of encouragement. Uh, a word of encouragement about how good Jesus is and that God is loving and forgiving. Another might need a word of warning that God is a judge. And that he will judge sin. The fact that he hasn't judged you yet doesn't mean he will not judge. He's, he is a judge. He will bring judgment one day. One might need comfort that, yes, indeed, God can save him or her, even though they've sinned so greatly. Well, friend, if that's you this morning, think about it. How many people has Jesus saved over the years? What makes you think that he can't save one more? Uh, even, if, even if your sins are the darkest black, what makes you think that this perfect Savior can't rescue you? He can. He will continue to save multitudes until he comes again. Friend, he can save you. So trust in him and don't be afraid. Come to him. Another might need to hear that it's the fool that says in his heart, there is no God. 
That's what the fool says. The point is that each person is different. They have unique personalities, unique experiences, unique thought processes, unique understandings of who God is. And so we need to be wise in our speech as we talk with them so that we can address the particular needs that they have, so that we can share Christ with them in a wise way, so that God might, by his grace, use that gospel proclamation to bring them to Christ. So do you see now why Paul wanted the Colossians to pray for him? Because evangelism, it requires the wisdom of God. We don't have it in and of ourselves. Let me just give a pastoral word. I know some of you are sitting there feeling condemned. I know it. Maybe it's been a long time since you shared the gospel. Can I just tell you how good the gospel is? That even right now you can come to the Lord and you confess your failure in that area and say, Lord, I just want to grow. Help me. And he will minister to you and give you grace. And he will not reject you. He will welcome you again and again. We have every resource we need to speak for Christ. May God help us do that as a church. May God help us grow as a church in that way. Friends, evangelism is awkward. There's no way around it. One of the ways the Holy Spirit lets me know I should share the gospel is when my breathing becomes lighter and my hands start to feel a bit sweatier. But then, but then I need to pray because it's just a reminder that I'm pathetically weak and I can do nothing, but Jesus can do everything. And he's so strong that he can do everything through me. And what good news it is. And what a wonderful thought to remember that this is a privilege. We get to speak for Jesus. We get to tell people about the one who's rescued us from all of our sins, the one that we look forward to living with forever and ever in a perfect world. We get to proclaim the glories of Christ, the mystery of the gospel, so that others would be saved. What a privilege. So friends, We want to be devoted to prayer. We want to live wisely before non-Christians. And we want to speak graciously to non-Christians. May God help us do that even this week. And let's pray.